Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Jo Leavers about her commercial novel, Tell Me How This Ends. Jo has spent most of her career working on magazines, most recently writing features about homes and interiors for leading newspapers and magazines. She has two grown-up children and lives with her husband and dog in Bristol. In this episode, we discuss how personal loss inspired her story, why adding a mystery element gave the book momentum, and why asking questions during the publishing process is important. But first, here's Joe with an excerpt from Tell Me How This Ends. Later, Annie gets out the photo albums because they can put pictures in the life story books too. She begins with the old Doyle family album, the one she knows off by heart. And as she turns the last page, a small envelope slips down into her lap. It's the kind of florist might pin to a bouquet, and that's what Annie thinks it is at first. A special message saved from an anniversary, perhaps. But as soon as she opens the envelope, she realises it's nothing of the sort. There is her lovely sister, standing beside her bicycle on the side path to their terraced house. Kath had just got her job at the shoe shop and rode her bike there and back to save on bus fares. Tick, tick, tick went her bicycle wheels every morning, as she steered it out onto the pavement. Then she'd be off, standing up on the pedals to get going over the brow of the hill. Glued to the back of the photograph is an official-looking form. In cramped, neat script it reads, Kathleen Doyle, aged 18. Dark brown hair, hazel eyes. Wearing brown suede jacket with fur trim, yellow dress. Last seen, 21st December 1974. Annie peels off the form, slides the photograph back into the envelope and replaces it between crackly cellophane pages. That time feels like yesterday but also forever ago. When she looks in the mirror these days, Annie is surprised by the face that peers back at her. Her hair is completely grey. Her skin is a map of lines, all heading downwards. She supposes to other people she looks like an old lady, the kind who has heartwarming anecdotes and smiles at fond, misty memories. She knows that this is what the people at the Rosendale Centre will be expecting. A nice story from a nice old lady. If only I had a happy tale to tell, she thinks. One that's all sunshine and smiles, with all the ends nicely tied up. 
Unfortunately, that's not the case for Annie Doyle. But next Saturday, she will get the free minibus to the centre and she will start telling her story as best she can. Hi Joy, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on me today to discuss your debut novel, Tell Me How This Ends. Hi Chloe, I'm really, really happy to be here. Thanks so much. So Joe, can you start by telling us what your novel is about? Tell us what Tell Me How This Ends is about. So Tell Me How This Ends follows the story of a woman called Henrietta, who gets a new job transcribing people's life stories. And she works from the Cancer Drop-In Centre. And there she meets Annie, who's her first client. And as soon as Annie starts to tell her life story, she reveals an unsolved crime from 1974. And this was back when Annie was 19 and she had a sister, Kath, who was 18, who drowned in unexplained circumstances. Now, Henrietta had fully resolved to carry out her transcribing job without getting at all emotionally involved um, because she's not really much of a people person, as we later discover. But when she hears this confession from Annie, she can't resist launching her own amateur investigation and trying to find out what happened to Kath. And as she digs deeper, the two women grow closer. Uh, They form quite a strong bond. And Henrietta ends up having to face ghosts from her own past. So it's a book about grief um, that was born of grief, but it's also about hope and how unexpected friendships can change the course of a person's life. Mm. And I want to talk about your kind of the, the grief aspect a little bit later, but I'd love to hear more about where the inspiration came from, because as I was reading it, I was thinking in my head, it's got to have come between one of two places so either the kind of mystery element or perhaps you were inspired by people writing their life stories because I've heard about a lot of people you know when they get to the end of their life really desperate to have their their life kind of in a book somewhere so where did that where did that spark of inspiration come from? Um, I guess a bit of both Uh, I the spark came really from visiting my mum in hospital uh, after she was diagnosed with cancer. And sadly, she only had four weeks between diagnosis and her dying. So there really wasn't much time to kind of talk to her and say like, hey, remember that story that you told me about, you know, your aunt or about your mum? All those kind of old family stories, because my mum grew up in, um, in East London in a working class family. Um, she, I remember her talking about being evacuated in the war and then um, when she got older she discovered that there was this thing called the Central Line and she could get into London and this whole new world kind of opened up to her. So I'd kind of heard snippets of stories but not really listened properly and not realised how important they were um, and it really wasn't the time. There were lots of other things to think about then to sit down and say, you know, tell me about aunt so-and-so. Um So it was wishing that I'd done that myself and then spending time in the cafe in the hospital where she was and looking around and seeing all these other people who were either patients or family and realising that they were all going through similar things and they all had stories. Everyone has a life story. Um, You know, people have lived incredible lives and on the outside they might look perfectly ordinary. And thinking what, what happens to all those stories? Um, wouldn't it be wonderful if they could be recorded and left for people 
And then I thought, what would happen if somebody wanted to leave their life story, but they couldn't complete it because there was a mystery. There was an unsolved question in their past. And that's the case for Annie. So was there a point when you were writing it? I don't know whether you were kind of before you had the idea or whether you were partway through where you were like, okay, this this is the book. This is the book that's going to get me the book deal or this is the book that has that spark of potential. Was there a moment when you thought that? I guess that was when I kind of dreamed up Henrietta as being the the counterpoint, um, the person that pulls these stories together. Um, because I think before that, I had lots of different scenes flitting around in my head. I had the one of the scenes which remains in the book, um, but in an altered form, um, kind of came to me like years before I even thought of writing a book. And it was of two sisters getting ready for a night out. Um, one's wearing a green dress, one is wearing a yellow dress um, and they know they look great and they're going off for a night at the pub and they push the doors open um, and they just wait for a second to make sure that everyone's checked them out <laughs> and then they walk in and I just had that scene but it didn't have a book um, to appear in for for a long while. So I guess it was once I'd thought of the the character of Henrietta and how she also has her own story, but we don't know it yet. Um, but she acts as like a kind of focal point for different people to come and tell their stories. Mm. Um, but also to answer your question, I I didn't ever kind of think I'm going to get a book deal or it's going to be picked for Radio 2 or any of those amazing things. It was just, it was just thinking like, come on, I need to write a book. Um, I've always wanted to, if I don't do it now, no one's going to do it for me. I've just got mm. to get around to it. So was this a kind of lockdown project for you? I did do quite a lot of writing in lockdown, but it was more kind of sprang from losing my mum and then a friend who was the same age as me, like quite soon afterwards. Um, and I think that's quite common that grief does make you reassess things and mm. think about the future. Um, because you realise in that moment that there's nothing you can do to change the past. You can't change the relationships that you had or the choices that you made. All you can do is kind of um, change a different future and um, without wanting to sound like a, an Insta quote, kind of make a different future for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about Henrietta then. She's such a has such a pivotal role in this novel. Um, and we we meet her as she starts this new job transcribing life stories can you tell us a little bit more about her character and also um how you created her how did you kind of get her from an idea to feeling like a real person on the page um so Henrietta um I guess she kind of reflects how I'm interested in the idea of an outsider because I think outsiders in stories have quite a unique position because they're observers um, and quite often like Henrietta, they take care not to reveal too much of themselves. So Henrietta really, she has things in her past that she definitely does not want to think about and she keeps those things at bay by clinging to rules um, and she likes her routines. Even when she goes shopping, she takes the same shopping list every week and she buys the same things. Um, she's 30, but basically she her life hasn't started. Annie's life is coming to an end, but Henrietta's life has, has barely started. Um, she doesn't have any friends to speak of at the beginning of the book. On Sundays, she goes and visits her parents for Sunday lunch, which is a, a weekly trial. Um, and she walks her equally antisocial, um, problematic dog called Dave. 
so that's that's her life it's very closed off um and very limited and i guess i wanted to to show yeah as i was saying before that we can glance pe at people on the see people on the street or we might see somebody on a bus and it might be easy to dismiss them but actually they've they've got things in their background and their stories that are really important um and have shaped them and i wanted through the book to kind of have her get in touch with her own past while she's investigating Annie's story as well. So we do see her grow um, and come to terms with things that happened. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a sign of a, a good novel where your characters, you you see their potential at the beginning of what they could be. And and by the end, no spoilers, by the end, you you see them as you'd hope they would be at the beginning of the novel. Um, Annie obviously changes Henrietta's life quite significantly when she comes in to be interviewed, but it's the death of her sister Kath that really haunts Annie and becomes this kind of central mystery in the novel. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that mystery bonds Annie and Henrietta? Yes, it is. It's quite a pivotal moment when Annie reveals that she had this sister who um, drowned, who left her clothes by the side of the Grand Union Canal in West London um, and was never seen again. Um, and it's a it that event kind of acts as a, a gateway for Annie to start thinking more clearly about her past and how much the loss of her sister kind of changed the course of her life, really. She went into a harmless marriage. Um, her family life kind of fell apart. So it's a trigger for her, but it's also a trigger for Henrietta, um, who has her own murky past. Um, and the act of Annie opening up and talking to Henrietta helps Henrietta realise that it's time for her to do something similar. And as she starts to dare for the first time to think of Annie as a friend, she wants to share things because she, she, her rationale is, well, that's what friends do. Um, they share things. And, and so she does it as a reciprocal act. And, and Annie kind of makes her see it in a, in a clearer way. And I wondered whether this kind of mystery element to the novel helps you structure it in some way, because obviously mystery plots have a certain rhythm to them and certain elements. And when you've got a character that wants to find something out, you have to see them going and meeting various people along the way to help them solve this mystery. And I was wondering, did that help you kind of structure the novel? And are you much of a, a planner when you, when it comes to writing or, or not so much? Um, to be completely honest, the mystery bits um, kind of came came at a later stage when I was doing edits with my agent, Hayley. Um, if it had been left up to me, kind of in my naivety, I thought, why can't we just have two women sitting and chatting and telling each other <laughs> their stories and getting a bit closer and and then that'll be the end. Um, but I don't think you can do that unless you're Sally Rooney and and I'm definitely not. Um, so Hayley was was like, you know, you've got to put more of a mystery in, you've got to put red herrings in, you've got to, to make it more of an investigation. Um, and that did give the book pace. And I had to kind of go and look at writers that I admired that did that brilliantly, um, like uh, Lisa Jewell and Leanne Moriarty. And I also look back at Elizabeth is Missing, um, Emma Healy's book, and mm. how all those writers kind of lay breadcrumbs, they lay different clues, and some of them 
um, are red herrings and then others are, are kind of seeds of things that then pop up later in the book. Um, so, yes, it was down to Haley that that structure kind of came into the book and, and gave it that momentum. Was that hard to suddenly have this almost, I guess your novel in your head was more of a kind of quieter conversational novel and then suddenly you have to bring this kind of plot to it that you hadn't expected was that difficult to then almost I mean obviously the edits are a hard part but almost thinking about the novel differently in your head was that a difficult thing to to bring into it or did you feel that once you knew the mystery it became easier to slot it into the novel uh, it was hard at the beginning and I think part of that is that resistance that um, you know lots of writers do have like how how can you even dream of suggesting that my novel is not perfect <laughs> not going to just publish it as it is um, and you know each, each round of edits you, you kind of do that thing of resisting and then by the end you think yeah okay you had a point yeah that was right <laughs> um, and I think the book is is better for it and I, I enjoyed it I kind of ended up thinking up, you know, different people that Henrietta could go and talk to um, and whole new scenes came out of that, you know, pubs that she went to and uh, people that she found on the internet and that kind of made it fun again. Um, so it kind of took me in a different direction, but one that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I, I absolutely know what you mean about kind of this idea of the book in your head and how you want it to be and then someone comes along and says you know actually we need to have the character do this and you're thinking well no that's not that's not what I planned that's not what I expected and I think as well it's I know something I find really difficult is that I you know I'd quite be quite happy to just have two characters in a room talking like you say and yeah. and and <laughs> And forget about all this kind of active character stuff. I mean, that's really hard. And when you think, oh, I have to, you know, I have to push my character into doing things. And maybe it are something about um, writers being more introverted or some writers being more introverted in that, you know, we're quite happy to sit and, and do things quietly and not push forward and be that active person. But yes, our characters yeah. have to be. <laughs> Yeah, no, I still, there's still, a, a, you know, scenes that I cut that I still mourn and think, um, oh, why couldn't we have her sitting there and watching this mum doing something? And um, we didn't have it because we'd already made that point elsewhere of, mm -hmm. of um, you know, how she's lonely or whatever. Um, but I guess you, you still have them in your head, don't you? You still kind of know that that's part of their character and maybe that's the value of the scenes that you cut. Mm, I don't know about you, but I forget what is actually in the book and what has been left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, true. I, I've had I don't know questions at events or I've met um readers and they'll ask me something and I'm thinking what was in the book I can't I can't remember yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about th this element of grief that's in your novel but also um I know you made a very conscious effort not to make it a um a, a book without hope or without a kind of um an uplifting element as well um what was it that you were kind of hoping to touch on when it comes to dealing with death and grief? Um, and how did you ensure that the book kind of left readers with this, like hope without, again, without spoiling the ending, but how did you kind of leave that the readers with this feeling of, of hope and not just sadness and loss? Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, I, I think I wanted to set out to write honestly about uh, a person dying and the physical steps and also about grief. And as one of the character says quite early on in the book it's not like on tv and it's not like in films and i wanted to just put that down on paper and readers have gotten contact with me and and said and which is just incredible and said like thank you for writing that um that put into words you know what i experienced but i couldn't um articulate or that it made them come to a, a sort of peace by by reading it and that's just incredible but yes, you're right. I did also want to put in hope and humour, because that is the the flip side of grief. It does it does kind of open up different worlds and different mm-hmm. versions of the world for you. I think the humour comes through in the writing. Well, I like to think it does, and also in other characters. Um, so there's there's characters like Audrey, who's Henrietta's boss, uh, and Henrietta is a, a tick box tick box person and she likes to laminate things and she likes her rules um and I think we've all had a boss like Audrey wherever we've worked um and then there's other people that come and tell their life stories and I think those were opportunities for for light humor um not to take the mickey out of them but to just sort of see the funny side of how people might tell their life story and how they see themselves but how you can see a different version um Mm. so there's Kenton who um writes about his weekends away with his best friend Colin doing bird watching and we're never quite sure whether um Kenton's wife knows what they get up to on the Norfolk broads and then there's Gary who's a um 
a former timeshare salesman um, and he wants to kind of appease his conscience by writing his life story. Um, so I guess people like that kind of pop in and out of the story and, and show a lighter side. I think there's there's always hope. There's always got to be hope um, as the flip side to, to grief and to sadness. Mm, mm. It is difficult, isn't it, when you're dealing with such big topics to, I guess, get that balance right between being true to what grief feels like and obviously it's worked for your novel and you've had some amazing reviews and people sharing with you um how they have felt and how the book has kind of highlighted or vocalized what they what they wanted um to say but it's also making sure that it's comforting for readers as well and that they take something away from that that it's making them feel you know it takes away from that element of grief because it's it's cheered them up or it's made them feel um, real warmth or humor towards your characters and uh, your your cast of kind of uh life story um the people who want their life stories told is uh very entertaining and i'm sure you had a lot of fun coming up with all these uh unusual characters as well they were good fun yeah i mean i i guess it could have been a different book but i think it would have been depressing to write and probably mm. quite depressing to read um, so yeah, I, I did aim for a balance. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked about how much of an inspiration your um, your mum was, and also uh, losing your friend as well. That kind of made you think, right, this is the time to to write this novel that I've always wanted to do, and to have that kind of leap of faith to do it. Had you ever attempted to write a novel before, or was this your your first attempt? This this is genuinely my debut. Um, in my late 20s and early 30s, I think I um, wrote some kind of flash fiction and short stories, but they didn't really go anywhere. I think I didn't have a voice. I was just trying to be like whatever book I just read um, and not very successfully. Um, so that was kind of fun to do. And uh, I did a, a year of traveling um, in 1992 and I wrote a diary for that time. But it wasn't it wasn't a novel. It was just kind of writing things down. Um, so it just kind of, you know, I got on with my career and I had kids um, and nothing really came of it. Um, but it was kind of always at the back of my mind. Um, will I ever get around to doing it? So, yeah, I finally, finally did. <laughs> <laughs> I thank goodness you did. And it's, you know, and I, and I know you've had a brilliant time now that you've been published. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your kind of writing routine. Are you a, a person that gets up early in the morning and does, a, I don't know, a 5am sprint? What's your kind of, uh, what's your routine? I know you come to my Thursday evening club, so maybe you're more of an evening writer than a morning writer. Uh well, I made the massive, um, put my foot in it with Zoe Ball when I spoke to her and, and confessed to her that I'd, basically didn't get going till about 10 a.m by which time like she's been working for about four hours and uh is is clocking off um but that's the truth <laughs> I'm not very good at getting up massively early um I work well in the mornings um probably evenings when I do your your sessions is probably more like editing and kind of going over things mm. um and getting in just a bit more work if I haven't managed to do much in the day um but my routine, I guess, um, I either work from a, a back bedroom or um, half of a, a shed, which I've kind of put a partition in. Um, and it's just a kind of breeze block 
1980s um, garage, which I've turned into um, what I indulgently call my writing shed. Um, and that's where I really work best um, because A, it doesn't have internet, which is a massive distraction for me. Um, and I can just close the door and it's just like you kind of go into that mood where you think, okay, this is what I'm here for. This is what I'm doing. You can't hear the washing machine finishing its cycle and, um, you know, making this pinging noise and you can't go and see what's in the biscuit barrel or make <laughs> another cup of tea. So um, that's that's a kind of a... I'm really lucky having that space and that's where I love to write. That's very principled of you, Joe. I think I'd be like sneaking back into the kitchen or, you know, going, I'm just going to take a break. And then that 10 minute break turned into an hour break or other. Yeah. I'm, I'm always very impressed by people who are, um, are good at kind of stepping away from the internet. And I know, like you say, it's almost like a enforced break because you can't access it. So yeah, it's because I have no self-control. <laughs> I have to actually physically put myself in a different yeah. form with no internet. I'm too easily distracted otherwise. And are you someone that's like, you know, got notebooks and post-it notes and um, everything kind of worked out already before you write or you do you like to kind of discover as you go? I do discover as I go, I think. I'll have... Um, like a, a basic framework for the story and then other things will kind of come up as I'm writing and sometimes they won't stay in it is literally just me kind of getting something out on the page and, and getting into the story and and working out the story as I go um and for my book two I've had to do a much more detailed kind of chapter breakdown which has been really useful but even then I find myself veering off course and adding in other bits which will probably get cuts but um <laughs> that's that's kind of the pleasure of writing isn't it seeing where it goes I think if um it works for some people but I think if I'm too regimented then it just feels quite flat mm. so I think you've got to kind of let yourself go a bit and see where the writing takes you so that gives me the impression then that you're someone that just likes to start a new project blank page doesn't scare you you're just happy to get going or are you or are you the opposite you don't like the blank page oh I don't like the blank page no <laughs> book, book two was like massively hard to get going on um you kind of look back and think how did I write a book <laughs> how did that happen because I really didn't have a clue um, well that's the reassuring thing because you you know you can look on your bookshelf now and be like I've done it I've actually finished it so I can once I've done it once it's possible to do it another time yeah that's the hope <laughs> <laughs> so I know after you'd written tell me how this ends you'd entered several competitions and awards and one of them was the Bath Novel Award which you, you were longlisted for so congratulations mm -hmm. for that Thank and you. I know you're such a big advocate of entering kind of competitions and and prizes how did this how did the kind of long listing change things for you was it a uh, was it helpful in terms of it made you feel like this you know this has something this has got legs yeah totally um so I entered about five maybe six competitions and didn't get anywhere with any of them except for the bath um which was fantastic um and at that point, I think I only had about 35,000 words and it was what I'd written kind of in the evenings and in at weekends. Um, and I was wondering if really there was any point to it or if it was just kind of doing what I'd done in my 30s, like just writing for fun, but really it wasn't going to be published. Um, so being long listed was, was just amazing. It was a validation 
and I'm quite secretive with my writing, which I wouldn't really recommend, but it meant that nobody except my husband had read these words until I sent it off to the competitions. But suddenly it was an awareness that somebody else, somebody I don't know, I still don't know who the judge was um, who long-listed me, um, but I definitely owe her a drink. Um, Realising that somebody else has read what you've written and thinking it's all right. Yeah, that was great. Mm. Um, so that kind of gave me the the confidence and the impetus to finish the book, which I did in a bit of a rush. Um, and then the editing kind of started. Um, but I think just in general, you're right. I do, I do think competitions are useful because um, it gives you a chance to start thinking about your reader um, to make that transition from what I was just talking about, like just enjoying the the kind of flights of fancy, if you like, and, and writing on the page and thinking at some point this has to be for a reader if it's going to be a book and it's got mm. to have that structure and it's got to have the pace and all those bits that make a book readable um, and make the reader want to keep turning the page. So it's thinking about your book in a bigger context. Mm. And from that point then, was that the thing that prompted you to look for an agent or had you know did you were you discovered to the long listing how did you get your agent uh well the bath novel award i think they kind of feed a few names to agents um but my book was really quite rough and ready at that point so i did have interest from one agent then um and i probably shouldn't have sent it off to her because it, it wasn't in great shape so i didn't hear back and i wasn't surprised really so then I did lots more editing, lots more kind of adding to it. And I approached about six or seven agents. And I heard back from Hayley Steed at Madeleine Milburn very swiftly. Uh, and we had a Zoom meeting and we just got on really well. And I felt really confident that she got the book and um, she said great things about it. And I liked the agency. I liked the books and the writers that they represented. And I also found that whole process, uh, as everyone, I'm sure, um, of sending off your, your stuff to agents, really stressful. So I thought, well, what do I do? Do I kind of wait and tie myself in knots and then, you know, have another meeting with another agent and and then I might go with Haley anyway. So I just thought, right, I'm just going to make a decision, go with her. And I withdrew from the other agents Um and, and what I was, was the I was happy with that decision. process like between signing with Hayley and getting your book deal? Was there a kind of a, a long time in between? Did you do a lot of editorial work? What was that process like? That was um, quite interesting because I think it, as a debut, you've got no kind of um, prior knowledge as you've worked in the book industry. You've got no prior knowledge of how long is like an inverted commas normal. And I kept thinking, like, am I being really rubbish? Is this taking forever? Is she like losing, losing hope? Like thinking, oh, God, I wish I hadn't chosen her. Um, but I think it was pretty standard. We did three quite strong rewrites. It took about six or seven, maybe eight months. And then we went on submission. But yeah, it's just that thing of, of the whole kind of publishing world being a little bit opaque and, and you know, maybe you shouldn't be comparing yourself to other people because everyone's journey and everyone's book is really different. Um, mm. But that's how long it took for me. Uh, and it, it was a better book by the time that we went on submission. I think it massively varies. And I think like everything, 
there is no point in comparing yourself to other people because every book's different every book needs different kind of hands-on work some books need you know lots of changes some books you and your agents discuss and you you know you decide to make a massive change I know I drove my agent mad by writing an extra 75,000 words which I didn't need um (laughs) so it's you know I think every book has a different journey and that that can be frustrating but also you know um it's one of the things that we as authors have to deal with one amazing thing that's happened to you since getting your book deal and we have to talk about this is you were on the BBC Two, BBC Radio Two book club with Zoe Ball. What was that like? Tell us about that experience because I, I mean, I think everyone that saw this happen was just so happy for you, Joe, and also just, I mean, extremely jealous as well, obviously, but you know, incredibly happy for you. So tell us what that experience is like. It was really amazing. It, it was like, uh, it's so hard to talk about things like this without like reversing to cliches. But there were uh, when I was sitting in the studio opposite. Zoe Ball I had like this almost out of body experience where I thought is this really happening or is it just a really long dream it's like if you put that in a book you think that's really poor writing like it felt like a dream but it actually did <laughs> <laughs> so I'd heard that they were putting it forward publishers in the um PR team and I'm a bit of a natural pessimist so I was like yeah no that's not gonna happen <laughs> they're just they're just saying this uh, and then it did which was amazing and I later um, found out that the the books that go through for the the picks for the Radio Two Book Club, they're chosen by librarians, which is just lovely um, because I think they're thinking about reading groups and um, kind of a broad spectrum of people and books that have lots of themes and that that's really what I wanted for my book from the outset, for people discuss to discuss the the themes that it brings up, not just kind of the the mystery element mm-hmm. at the heart of the book. So yeah, I was really pleased to imagine that book clubs would be reading my book. That's that's kind of what I dreamed for it. Mm, it is such an ideal book for that discussion, and I think hopefully that I mean hopefully that program has helped raise your profile, and um, but lots more people will be discovering your book. I would love to hear a little bit about your kind of thoughts in general about what it's been like to be a debut novelist um, and kind of what the publishing process has been like for you has there been anything that's been surprising or challenging or anything that you think oh I wish I'd known this before it all began you know what kind of what advice would you give to anyone that was about to become a, a debut novelist yeah I think it's also worth mentioning like I'm a I'm quite a late debut I'm in my 50s um so just don't give up like it's it's always worth doing um it's always worth trying I don't think there's any age cut off I guess my advice would be always ask questions because I think agents and publishers forget that we're doing this for the first time you know they live and breathe this publishing world they know the kind of um time scales for things they know when book covers are decided they know how much input you can have into that but we don't um so just to ask those questions and just be completely honest and say i don't understand what this term means or um you know how much editing am i supposed to do at proofreading stage what can i do those those kind of things um and i think in general um you know, lots of writers say this, but find your tribe, find the people on Twitter that are going to support you and and be in that same position because they're a massive support. They really are. They've been great. 
um, and also set your own boundaries. Um, everyone's book is personal to them. It's going to have some part of their personality in it. Uh, and when it gets to the point of doing PR or or just how much time you physically spend on doing promotion and thinking about your book, kind of have those boundaries because having a book published is amazing. It's fantastic. But there's a whole world of life out there that, that doesn't center around books. And sometimes it's good to remember that as well, um, that it's just one part of your life. There's other parts and other people that are equally important. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we, we talk a lot, don't we, about how much as a writer we can actually control. And I think sometimes if you sit there and panic over things that are happening that you can't control, it's not going to do you any good. And I think uh, we, we've we spoken, um, debuts have spoken recently about kind of mental health struggles, particularly in the debut year. And I think a lot mm. of that comes down to this idea of uh, you're losing control because your book at, at the beginning is yours totally. And then mm. it goes out into the world and suddenly you don't have any say, you don't have any control. You just have to cross your fingers and hope that everything's going to be okay and people enjoy it and, um, the publishing team do a do a great job and all those things are completely out of your control and I think that's that's the challenge isn't it and like you say making sure that your life is not just book 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 the whole time yeah yeah is a, a really helpful thing yeah and trust the process because you know the people that are editing they know what they're doing they want it to be a success as well um trust your agent when they tell you things yeah because they do that every day of their their working lives and they've been doing it for years so sometimes you just have to go with the flow um, mm. yeah yeah sometimes to, again talking about control you have to just sit back <laughs> and just be happy yeah. that you're yeah. not doing it and uh, uh yeah it's uh it's a challenge it is difficult but I think um it's something I like with everything when you face rejections you have to just accept them and when you become published you have to just go okay that's not my job anymore I've done my bit I've done my writing that's that's it <laughs> yeah it, you're right there's a bigger picture it's like mm -hmm. yeah the the agents that don't want you or the publishers that don't want you that's not a personal decision mm -hmm. um Absolutely. that's because of the market or something else that they've got or uh because they weren't in a very good mood that day or <laughs> <laughs> whatever those things are not actually about you so yeah um you control the things that you can do and and let other people get on with their part of the process. Mm. So you briefly talked about how book two has been a bit more challenging and involved a bit more um, focused kind of plotting. So finally, Joe, can you tell us, tease us, what are you writing at the moment? Actually, that, that's something I was going to say in, in the previous question, like tips for other writers. Have, your, have some ideas lined up for book two. Um, when your agent goes out on submission um so that she can go to publishers and say and you know there's this other fantastic idea lined mm. up that's a great tip actually because that's something I hadn't thought of when I went out on submission and suddenly I had a panic and was like oh what am I gonna say so yeah absolutely great great tip and also to have something for yourself to fall back on because you spend so much of your time thinking breathing dreaming about book one and then you've got to kind of put that baby to one side and and um 
go to book two and it's quite hard to make the transition. But if you've had something kind of bubbling away at the back of your mind that you already feel the love for, that you already feel invested in, then it's a lot easier to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, my book two at the beginning of when was it? At the beginning of this year, um, I ditched 70,000 words um, of a book two that just wasn't working, just wasn't right. Um, my heart wasn't in it. I think I was still thinking about Annie and Henrietta and kind of missing them. Um, so now I'm on a different version of book two, uh, which is about mother and daughter bonds. It's about a mother and daughter that have been estranged for 20 years and how they hopefully find their way back to each other. And I wanted to be uh, kind of go a lot deeper into emotions because Annie and Henrietta are quite closed off from their feelings. They take a lot of time getting getting to the heart of things and kind of admitting how they feel. Um, but this one, I kind of wanted to go in a lot faster and harder uh, into into that mother-daughter bond and the emotions that it brings up and pregnancy. So that's what book two is about. Well, that sounds really interesting, Joe. And I'm sure delving into their kind of inner thoughts and their emotions is going to be a challenge. But I know having read your first book, I know that you are very good at getting into kind of the deeper character emotions. So I'm looking forward to reading it. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Joe. Oh, no, thank you. It's a real pleasure. That was Joe Leavers talking about her commercial novel, Tell Me How This Ends, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.